We're going to jump back into Mark. If you were here for the last, last uh, week, our Christmas Sunday, a little bit different, didn't have Bible class, uh, we didn't preach out of the book of Mark, so you might be a little, we have to kind of jolt and get our minds back into it, back into the gospel of Mark. Um, so Mark is, is likely one of the first gospels that was written. Um, scholars debate about these things, um, who wrote which one's first. Uh, most scholars think it was Mark that was written first, and we are uh, 12 chapters in to this gospel. Can you believe it? We've been in Mark since last Easter, um, just slowly working our way through it, allowing the text to tell us what the text needs us to hear, um, not trying to rush ourselves through it, trying to actually do justice to the word, um, and it's been a powerful journey. At least I've thought it's been a powerful journey, uh, and today's not going to be any different. <clears throat> We're entering into a season of Jesus's ministry in his life where he's going to be uh, moving into dangerous territory, uh, and he's going to be going into very public spaces, and he's going to be having very difficult conversations, uh, and he's going to quite literally put his life at risk, uh, and this is what's going to lead to, as we know at the end of the story, his crucifixion, um, and it all begins, it's all been kind of building up to this point, but now is whenever um, people really begin seeking to kill this man named Jesus. So it's a good, it's a good time for us to kind of take a break from it with uh, Christmas and then jumping back in because we're actually going to be entering into, uh, we're, we're a little bit into the 12th chapter, but we're kind of be entering into a new section uh, that Mark is going to be building for us. So over the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at three conversations that Jesus has with three different groups of people. Now these groups of people, they, they all come from the same major group. Um, a, a fancy term for it is called the Sanhedrin. Um, so it's kind of like the over-governing religious body. And then from that, you have the branches, um, including the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and another group called the Scribes. At least in our Bible, that's how they're named. In other Jewish writings, they're called these things. There's other groups. There's other political groups and religious groups. But these are kind of the leaders. Um, this is kind of like the you know, judicial branch, and you know, that kind of thing. It's like, these are the kind of the ma major dogs in the fight. Uh, and so Jesus has interactions with all three of them, and Mark kind of puts them in order, uh, and I think he does it for a reason. One, to, to show that Jesus, you know, he can, he can put up fists and he can fight back, not literally put up fists, but he can fight back with these, these religious leaders. He can be on their level, and in fact, he can actually stump them, which is what we're going to see um, throughout these next couple of interactions. Um, and it obviously doesn't make them very happy. Uh, so we are going to start in verse 13 with the very first group of, of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 13. That's where we're going to start in our section this morning. Uh, and this is going to be the first, like I said, the first conversation that Jesus has. And, and I, I do think this one is very important because of how this section ends. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of build it out whenever we get there, but um, it's going to kind of end with a question. Uh, that might not be obvious, but still a question that I think Mark wants us to ask. So if somebody would be willing, uh, if you could read chapter 12 of Mark, verse 13 through 17. There's no hard words in there. Herodian, if you get caught on that one, but other than that, all of them are pretty easy, so don't be afraid. 
Okay, perfect. Um, okay, so let's, let's talk about this for a second. Uh, what stands out to you in this little, this little insert, this conversation with the Pharisees? <clears throat> they try to trap him. How? What ways did they try to trap him? Anybody is what's next. Yeah, absolutely. So it's this, it's this conversation about a coin uh, and, 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 the, and the tax that that coin is associated with. Now in the sermon, as, as most of you know, um, our Sunday morning sermon, which I'll be preaching um, here in the next hour, um, it's going to be over the same text. Um, and I'll actually have an image of the coin, and we'll talk a little bit about this um, on, on during that time. Um, but, but it's a conversation over coin, and this group's trying to trap Jesus. In fact, all of these groups are going to be trying to trap Jesus um, in, their own, in their own ways. Uh, I want to actually start, before we move to the, the meat of it, I want to start at the beginning, though. Uh, what, do you notice what they try to do at the beginning? Like, what are they doing when they, in, when they interact with Jesus at the beginning? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, flattery. Goes along Ray, I hear, or something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, they're trying to butter him up. I like that. Yeah, they're, okay, first they call him teacher, which is a prestigious name. You know, somebody who teaches, someone who has authority to teach. So they're willing to acknowledge him as that. In fact, all three of these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, all three of them will start with that. They'll all call him teacher. Uh, and then they, they, they tell the truth. Now, do they tell the truth in their perspective? No, but still, ironically, they still tell the truth. You are a man of integrity. You're a man who's not swayed by men, which is almost foreshadowing to the very thing that's about to happen. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I'm not going to be swayed by you, right? Um, so there's, there's a, it's like a tongue-in-cheek kind of here, as Mark writes this, um, of setting this story up uh, and the interaction that the, the Pharisees have with, with Jesus. Okay, so <clears throat> they, they, they go in to catch him. So that's an interesting word. Um, let's see, what verse is that? Uh, okay, to trap him. Okay, so very first verse. They sent him to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. They kind of have a, a tie with each other. We won't go into that. But they try to, my translation says trap him. Anybody else have a different translation? Catch him. Yeah, so the Greek word there is arguian. What does it sound like? Argue. It's where we get our, our word argue from. Um, and it, it quite literally means to trap. Um, in the Greek, it has a very violent intent behind it, just like an argue would. We're not talking about like a, a joyful argue. This is a vicious attack that the Pharisees have against Jesus. Uh, and the bulk of the question that they're asking is about taxation. And they ask about a coin. Now, here's what I love about this. So they're entering, they're asking a question about taxes, right? What does Jesus do? What does he do next? So just, just, just read it, okay? So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Okay, so then he says, why, you know, but knowing their hypocrisy, he knows kind of the trick they're trying to play. He said to them, why put me to the test? Then what does he ask? Bring me. Did you notice that? 
Jesus doesn't pull one out of his back pocket. He might have coins. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But what does he require them to do? To produce the very coin that they're trying to catch him in. You see, like, they are in the holy place. Like, there is so much irony riddled in this. It is so funny, like, what Jesus is doing here. He's like, okay, you want to talk about a coin? You want to talk about taxes? Okay, where's that coin? Oh, you have one. How convenient. Because you're trying to catch me in a trap, but it seems like you're playing into the system just as much as you're thinking I am. And you want to try to trick me, but you seem to be the ones that are okay with this. Okay, so, so it's a little fun play there that Jesus is doing. So he says, give me a coin, and then he goes into a very strange interaction. Uh, what does he ask? Whose image is on this coin? Okay. So on the Roman denarius, um, it is a silver coin. Again, I'll show you an image um, on Sunday morning. Actually, Paul, if you want to find that image, it's at the very beginning of my sermon. Um, so it's a, it's a really simple image. It has, you know, front and back, just like every coin and every quarter does. It's silver and has an imprint on it. Here it comes. There it is, right there. Um, so the face on there is Caesar. It is a certain Caesar because all of the Roman emperors are called Caesar. It's just kind of a title. Um, this is um, Tiberius Caesar. Uh, and then you see around the edge, there's some weird scribble around there. Um, that's actually Latin. Uh, and it's abbreviated Latin, so it doesn't even make words. It just makes abbreviations. But what the Latin kind of spells out is... Um, Oh, let me, I'm going to make sure I get it right. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. That's what the front says. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, his father. And then on the back side is Tiberius' mother, Livia. And again, you have Latin inscriptions abbreviated with the inscription, High Priest. in an extremely offensive coin, if you're a monotheistic Jew, having to carry this around, holding it in the temple grounds, and offering it to God. Extremely offensive coin. Um, I'll mention this in my sermon, so deja vu. Um, it would be the best modern example I can think of it, and it, it probably doesn't even do it justice. It would be like if our government decided, knowing that for the most part, the majority of Americans at least claim to be Christian, and they decided they're going to put like a pentagram on the back of the quarter and the dollar, um, and knowing that it is extremely offensive to us. And then you would have to carry that coin around. And not just in your expenses are you going to have to see that coin on a daily basis and make it and exchange it, but you're also going to have to bring it into here and drop it into the offering tray to your God, your one God. A coin that's claiming this man is part divine. So there's a lot of baggage behind this coin, <clears throat> behind the system that this coin lies within. Who do we pay allegiance to, Jesus? Who do you pay allegiance to? Do we pay our taxes? Do we, do we use this coin that has this extremely offensive man who claims he has God on it or not? So what's at risk? And I'm asking this, what's at risk for Jesus here? For either answer, yes or no. What if Jesus says, 
uh, yes, pay, use the coin, at least in the Pharisee's mind. Yeah. Why is that not good? What's that? It's offensive because you're saying, okay, yeah, that you approve of this coin. Okay, so what if Jesus says no? Yeah, don't, don't pay. Yeah, thumbs down again. Why? Yeah, with the Herodians present, you definitely don't want to do it. Yeah, yeah, so the Herodians were, were follow a person who is very tied to um, and put in place by the Roman government. They're closely associated with him. And so they're saying, oh, you don't want to pay your coin. You don't think Caesar's divine. You're out, right? You're going to the cross. You'll be killed for it. Um, yeah, go ahead, Carol. Okay, I might give you an answer off topic. Right. Um, certainly outside of the monotheistic faith, it is. Um, yeah, in God's law. Tracy, what, do you have any thoughts on that? So do we have any instances in which God gives the command to his followers um, to pay or not to pay um, the, a coin like the Daenerys to him. Can you think of anything? Right. Which I guess would have been foreign coin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. I'll have to clean up on my my temple temple taxes. <laughs> very very uh, fun topic. Um, <laughs> uh, temple tax. Yeah. Mhm. Mm yeah. Yeah, so there was an exchange. Like Tracy said, there was an exchange at the temple. So you give in some coins and we give you the appropriate coins and you can use those. Um, but I don't know. I don't know of a detailed account of a detailed written down. Um, so I'd have to look that up. Um, okay, but Jesus, Jesus is caught in this situation, right? Do you support the tax? Do you not support the tax? So how does Jesus answer? Um, I say this in my sermon Jesus says something that's so profound and so significant. Um, I don't think we see it that way often when we read it. We're just like, oh, that was clever. Okay, let's move on. Um, but I think it's so profound and so significant that um, it's, it is the question. And it's, it is the question that Tracy and I are going to spend the next couple weeks trying to answer justly. Um, so whose inscription is on the coin? And they say, okay, that's easy. That's Caesar's. Awesome. Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Um, and I think this is a good place of Jesus replying and acknowledging the legitimacy of human government. Um, I think we're sometimes afraid to claim that. Um, but even Paul will talk about, 
being a, being a citizen, being part of the citizenship. Um, so Jesus was not, Jesus, and I read a book about Jesus, Jesus the Zealot, is what I read. So the Zealots were a group of people out in the boondocks um, that didn't like the Roman government and would not pay the taxes, would not do any of the, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't go into the temple grounds, and they were actually planning attacks to, to cast the Romans out. So think of like the Maccabees, our example of, the, of this kind of mentality. Um, so the Pharisees are trying to ask Jesus, like, basically, are you one of those people? Are you a zealot? You know, you're out in the backwoods. Are you going to come in and fight and kick these Romans out of here? And jo Jesus, I think, here is making a stand. I'm not, that's not what I'm here to do. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That is key. Whose, whose picture is on that coin? Give it back to him. Because that's not, that's not God's. Give it back to Caesar. Pay the taxes. Be a good citizen. Let's move on from that. But the second part of Jesus' response is extremely significant. So what does he say? What does that mean? Give to God what is God's. What does that mean? Let's open it up. Let's talk about it. Okay, obey the commandments. Okay. What does it mean? Everybody's scared. Because <laughs> it's the answer. Like, it's the question, right? And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks trying to answer it, right? So everybody's like, well, I don't want to try. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So let's carry this imagery through that Jesus has established for us, right? Whose image is on the coin? It's Caesar's. Whose image is on the coin? God's. Jesus is tapping into an ancient idea of what it means to be the image of God. What does it mean to be the image of God? What does it mean to live within that image? And what does it mean to give, give that image, to give that coin, that vessel, to give it back to God? That's the question Jesus is asking here. Um, so to answer that, well, part of it, we have to go all the way back to Genesis. So if you want, um, you can flip back to Genesis 1. So remember, G Jesus, he even uses the word image here. Whose image? It's a very distinct word, very important word. Whose image is on the coin, now whose image are you made in? Uh, so go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Will somebody read that for us? Perfect. Thank you, Ethel. All right, let us give, um, if your Bible says man, correct? It says it's on. I don't know what happened. I stopped touching it. Um, so if your Bible says man, um, it's, a, it's a common mistake in, in um, translating that word. It's the word Adam, which is where we get Adam from. Uh, and in Hebrew, it means human. It's all it means. Um, in fact, the word actually means um, a bag made of dirt is actually what the word means. Um, 
Don't switch those around because it's a different meaning. If you, <laughs> um, but, it's, but I mean, honestly, I mean, you, maybe that works too. But anyways, so it's a human, right? It's these human creatures made out of dirt. It's these vessels. It's these clay figures that Jesus makes or makes. He makes one of them. Uh, and he says, let's make them in our image, which is interesting. Who's, who's God talking to here? It's curious, um, but we'll move on from there. Um, let's make him in our what image, which is the same word often used for idol. Let's make an idol. So we don't like the word idol uh, for good reason. Because <laughs> um, most, most faiths throughout the Old Testament, an idol was used to represent um, different gods. You had gods of the rain and the sun and the land and, and fertility and so forth. You had these, these gods that were over the multiverse, over the, or the universe, over the existence. Um, and so you had these little gods, and whenever you needed rain, you pulled out that god, you put your idol down. It gave you something to see um, that represented in some way the god that it was associated with. And not just appearance, there were usually symbols and little things with it, and it just helped focus your mind on something so you knew what you were praying to and for for the thing. That's what an idol is. It was a representation of the real thing. And so the author of Genesis takes that idea and takes that language, and God shapes it, and he says, okay, you, all of creation, you are actually my idol." You are my idols. You are my representation. When people look at you, in part, they see me. Not to fool me, right? No one would claim that the little statue is the God. Not even ancients, they wouldn't say that. But it's a representation of the God, whatever one it was associated with. And so God says, let us make humankind, and let's make an idol, let's make them in our image, after our likeness, and let them have what? Dominion. Let them rule. Let them have power. Now, the, that word rule is interesting. Um, I wasn't even playing. This isn't in any of my notes. This is all for free. Um, that word rule is really interesting, or dominion. Again, in the English translation, that often has a negative connotation to it. We think of ruling something, we think of like a dictator. We think dominion, we think... Um, destroying and controlling and taking over and kicking out, right? You have dominion over something. In Hebrew, the word for rule and dominion, um, uh, it is, it would be like, the best example I, or uh, image I have, it, it's like a father or a mother or parents over a household who deeply love and care for their children and their house and what they have. They still rule over it, they're still able to discipline it, but it's all motivated behind love. That's what it means to rule. And so God gives his little bags of dirt that are made as little idols of him. He gives them that ability to love and through their love to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, both things below us and things above us, over the livestock, things in front of us, over what? All of the earth over all of creation, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And let's just move on to the next image because it's beautiful. Verse 27, so God created, he molded humankind in his own image. In the image, in the idol of God, he created, he molded them. 
your Bible probably says him, it's them, it's plural. Male and female, he created them. Male and female are made in the image and represent the image of God. Whose picture is on the coin? Caesar's. Give to Caesar's, Caesar what is Caesar's, whose image is on the coin, on the idol, God. So give to God what is God's. Woo! Powerful. Jesus is brilliant, folks. Like if you don't walk away from Jesus' teaching and your mind isn't blown, you're not reading him close enough. He's a fascinating man and he's brilliant in these conversations. So that's it. It ends. That's the end of that part. End of the conversation with the Pharisees. Um, and now we're going to move on to the next group. With that question in the back of our minds, what does it mean to be made in the image of God and to live out that image? And we enter into a conversation with a group called the Sadducees. Sadducees. Well, somebody, is somebody willing to read uh, verse 18 ver, uh, through verse 26? I love that ending. You are quite wrong. <laughs> um, the, the word there, just for fun, uh, the word there, you are quite wrong. Um, the Greek there is, um, is, is better translated error. You're in error, uh, which is the Greek word planonin, P-L-A-N-A-N. Uh, what does that sound like? Planonin. Maybe it doesn't sound as much like it, but uh, it's where we get our word planet from. Uh, and it, it, it can be translated as error or to, be, to drift off, to be off course. Um, so it's where we do get our word planet from. For I guess that reason they drift off. They're off in the distance. Whatever. Anyways, that was for free. So we're, we're, in, we're introduced to a new group. We have the Pharisees and we have the Sadducees. Um, safe to say that these two groups um, are the top ones of the religious leaders in Jesus' time. Um, and they were very different from each other. In fact, they often get in arguments with each other um, throughout um, Jewish history. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, the sad oh, okay, here it is. Um, the Sadducees, this in Mark, this is the only time that the Jesus has an exclusive conversation with the Sadducees. Um, so most of the time they're like in the background or just listening in, but this is the only time in Mark where it's just them and Jesus talking. And how do they start, or how does Mark start this? Because it actually illuminates one of the major differences. No resurrection. Okay, my ladies are going back already to pass out, which means we're running out of time, so let's just zoom through this. Some of the major differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, we'll talk about this in, um, in the sermon, but deja vu, here we go. Uh, <coughs> the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sadducees primarily uh, believed that the Torah was the only word of God, the only sacred scripture. So the Torah uh, is just the first five books of the Bible. That's it. Um, so you, you know, count to five, mine ends at 207, actually. Um, so if I just got to 207 and I ripped out the rest of my Bible, the Sadducees would be happy. <laughs> um, so they don't believe in, in any of the others, that it's the sacred word of God, so they, it's just the Torah. Uh, and another primary belief of them is no resurrection. 
uh, which is stated, uh, and which is stated here. So there is no hope for life after death. When you die, when the body dies, the soul dies with it. The only hope of a legacy you have is the one that you leave behind with people. You have no future hope of anything. We'll talk a little bit about that more later, but uh, a fun little Bible joke, uh, but you have to promise to laugh whenever I say it on Sunday or in the next hour. Um, the Sadducees, easy way to remember them, a fun little Bible joke. The Sadducees, they're sad, you see, because they have no hope for the future. Okay, well, you have to laugh now first, and then you've got to laugh then. Uh, there's other differences, but that's the two primary ones. And that's the, that last one is the one that Jesus and them are really going to duke it out with here. Um, what is Jesus' hope? And so, how do they do this? They build this ridiculous scenario of a woman who has seven husbands over the course of them dying, which might be a hint, don't marry her if you're on number, if you're number six and five have died before you, like, like, uh-oh, here we go. Um, but they build this ridiculous scenario, which is funny because um, in the Apocrypha, which is just books outside of our Bible, but some still believe they're still inspired in some way, religious writings, um, there's a book called Tobit, Tobite, however you want to say it, um, and in that book, in the Apocrypha, there's actually a story of a woman who had seven, uh, seven husbands, all brothers, but they don't believe in that because they only believe in the Torah, but they're using outside sources to try to pick fights with Jesus. Isn't that funny how they do that? So they, they pick a fight with Jesus, build this ridiculous soap opera scenario. This woman is married. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second. Let's go to Deuteronomy 25, and let's see where this actually comes from and read it within its context. Um, so verse, or chapter 25, um, will somebody read 25... Uh, five through six. Okay, <clears throat> there's a lot there. We don't have time to dig into it. Um, part of the reason this law is intact is so that Jews and Gentiles will not mix. In this time, this is not something you wanted as a Jew. If you're a Jew, you marry and you have children with Jews. Um, and so this helped prevent that. If a woman's husband dies, instead of her having the opportunity to go marry a Gentile, she can marry her husband's brother and stay in the Jewish heritage. Um, but another, and one that may be a little more resonant to us, because we, we don't really struggle with that as much, um, is that this was a, a law designed and tailored to actually protect women. It may not seem like that um, in our modern eyes and modern lens of reading through, but in the ancient world, women did not have um, the influence or the status that they even have today. Um, some would say that they still don't have as much as they should. In many ways, I agree with that. Um, but in the ancient times, it was a completely different world. And if a man and a woman are, are married and the husband dies, the woman, woman is at risk of losing everything. Her land, her money, her influence, everything. This is why prostitution is so prominent um, in, in your Bible. It's because oftentimes that is the means women had to, to go about to live. And so this was a law. If a, if a man dies and the woman is left a widow, the husband's or the brother's responsibility was then to take in that woman, 
marry her, not for polygamy reasons, but to protect her and to protect their heritage, protect her assets, so that if she did have a kid eventually, she could pass those on to her family. It's a, it's, in the ancient world, it's a beautiful law. It's a, it's a beautiful mindset, right, to protect. But the Sadducees, they decide to take something that is beautiful and meant to protect and spin it and skew it and squeeze it out to be something different for their own purposes. I, I want to pose this question now. In what ways do we do that today? Yeah. 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 And so the, the existence, uh, it still exists today, the oppression of certain people groups, and women oftentimes fall victim of that oppression in multiple ways. Many times other ethnicities and religious groups, they fall under that umbrella. And you'd made a good point that the cause of this is because we are human, is we are broken people. And God's purpose for the world and for his people is to be united in his image. But we have a knack, <laughs> we have a knack for being divisive, p- for putting, um, I like to shape it as love handicaps. I was designed to love, but for some reason, I'm exclusive and biased in my love. Yes, it's, it's, it's rooted in this selfishness, and I like that language because it reminds me of, of an ancient biblical pattern, actually an ancient, not an ancient, a human pattern of I see something that looks pleasing in my eyes and I take it for myself. Hmm, doesn't that sound familiar? Of some, or some people in a garden that saw something that was pleasing to their eyes and they took it, right? This is a human pattern. This is a human problem. And so the Sadducees, um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how we, we see this in our world. They build this soap opera scenario. We don't have, we're, we're out of time, folks. I'm sorry. But uh, I do find it interesting. Um, Sadducees were often thought of, compared to Pharisees, as the conservatives. So there's conservatives, and the Pharisees were the progressives. Isn't that ironic? Because we look at the Pharisees and think, oh, they're so conservative. Look, they all on the law, all this kind of stuff, and look, all throughout history, there have been, it just, it's a matter of perspective, of progression, conservative, good, bad. Um, so the Sadducees were often looked at as conservatives. They build this ridiculous scenario. Jesus responds to them with this thing about uh, the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, which is what we're going to talk about in the sermon. Uh, he has this interesting phrase about marriage, about maybe not, they're, they're not being marriage. Um, in the life to come. So um, maybe we'll get into that in the sermon. Uh, and so there's a lot here. We don't have time to cover it. What I do want to do is end in, our, end in prayer over our time this morning, um, and then we'll have some time to fellowship before worship. So if you will pray with me. God, thank you so much for your, the power of your word. God, thank you for your presence and being with us this morning as we study it. God, we pray that the words that we spoke, they won't be in vain and they won't be Uh, misleading to anybody's heart in their walk with you, but God, that you will use these words and you will use this story in your word, you'll use it for your good. 
And God, if, if anything, if we're going to take anything away from this, may it be a recognition of our own brokenness and the brokenness of the world. But God, that that's not how we were designed. We were designed to live as your image, to be image bearers, to be little idols of you, so that when people see us in some part, they see you as well. So God, help us tap into that, about what it means to actually live as an image of God, to be an, to be an image bearer of God. What does that mean? What does that look like for our life? God, may that question stick with us throughout this entire week and morning and moment. God, everything we've done this morning has been to your glory, and everything we're about to do may it be to your glory. We say this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.